Now we have time for any questions that you might have related to Tantra. Yes? Um, do you think it would be good to um, do much of our sadhana pract practice in um, not in Tibetan, but in a language which is easier for us to understand, like English or Norwegian? Well, if we look at uh, the way that uh, the Tibetans practice uh, their sadhanas, they certainly don't uh, recite them in Sanskrit. They recite them in Tibetan. And so, <coughs> based on that, then uh, one could say that it would be, uh, there would be a great many benefits to and advantages to doing our practices in our own language. Now, to do it in our own language would allow us to understand more uh, clearly what we're actually reciting because the practices are difficult enough to <coughs> put in uh, what the uh, words are actually referring to because the sadhana practice is like a, uh, a script of a, uh, an opera or something like that in which uh, we actually are uh, going to try to generate the state of mind that is being described in the uh, sadhana. So that's difficult enough when uh, we have to uh, also figure out what the words themselves mean. That makes it even more challenging. The difficulty, of course, is having a good translation, an accurate translation, and not just accurate, but a beautiful translation, and one which is uh, beautiful to recite, that comes uh, uh, out of our mouths in a very melodious way, and that would be also <coughs> written in such a way that it would be conducive for chanting. Now, this is very challenging and uh, not very easy to do when we have a sadhana in our own language that is very, very difficult to recite because of the language and is not you know, clearly translated either, then that makes obstacles as well. The argument for uh, keeping it in Tibetan is, uh, as the uh, previous Kala Rinpoche had, uh, his predecessor, had uh, explained was that uh, in centers all around the world that uh, everybody doing the practice would be able to recite it together because they're all doing it in the same language. So this is very helpful for building a community. So there are benefits and disadvantages of uh, each, uh, each choice. I... Uh <coughs> Personally, I must say that uh, from my own experience, I, uh, for most of my years of practice of uh, sadhanas, I did them in Tibetan. But uh, this is because I know Tibetan. And so, you know, reading the language, <laughs> I knew what it meant. So that uh, I don't really have the experience of, uh, well, maybe I do have the experience of uh, reading it uh, and doing it when I didn't really understand the language. This would be in the very, very beginning uh, before I received any explanations of uh, the text. And although I could read the script and, you know, the dictionary I could read, I didn't really know what I was uh, reciting. And what I found at that stage that was very helpful and uh, why I did it was that uh, I uh, <coughs> came from a uh, uh, very highly intellectual background from Harvard University, and I was very arrogant. And I had this uh, attitude that uh, I knew was a, an obstacle, which is, you know, I don't, I'm not going to do this unless I understand what I'm doing, you know? Me, 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 I'm so important, I should understand, explain it to me this type of uh, arrogant attitude. And uh, I found that it was very good 
to just do it, you know, even though I didn't understand uh, very well what I was doing, just as a way to gain a sense of humility. And that when I would be ready, my teachers would explain to me what it was. I mean, this was before there were any translations available, mind you. I mean, we're talking, I started doing these practices in 1970. I mean, it's a long time ago. So, uh, <coughs> but then my Tibetan improved and I received the teachings and I did it in Tibetan. But uh, I reached a certain point at which I, uh, it was sort of a plateau that uh, it wasn't going any further and it was getting into just, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, just, just going too quickly and uh, not really putting too much meaning in it. And then I switched to doing it in English, but mind you, it was my own translations. <laughs> so <laughs> I uh, knew what they were supposed to <clears throat> mean. And uh, uh, now I do them in English. And I find that uh, it has uh, more meaning to me. So I've uh, tried it in uh, you know, these three different uh, ways. And uh, I think that when you're doing something in a community, then you know, there's one uh, what should we say, style that it might be done, especially if it's an international community. And when you do it privately, personally, there might be another. So I think that uh, one needs to judge for oneself what is the most uh, helpful. You know, the point is, of course, to use it as a, as a script to be able to uh, actually generate the state of mind. As uh, I mentioned uh, earlier this morning, it's a self-generation, self-transformation, not just a transformation of your mouth. So, like that. But for chanting, nowadays, certainly, the Tibetan still works the best for chanting. Yeah. Thank you. Um, two points. First, a point on the previous question, uh, also about whether I should practice in English or in Tibetan. I was once told that, yeah, you can translate a lot, but some of the sadhanas are actually revealed as termas and then you should not translate it. So I would like to have your comment on that, following up from that question. My second point is on um, tantras and the West. It seems that the West is particularly fascinated by Vajrayana, by tantras. That already goes back to Alexandra Neal, when she all these, what she describes, the magic and things. It seems to me that is a bit in the West also. We want to be enlightened in one lifetime. That's our, you know. But do I get from you, from your presentation this morning, that we are then too quickly skipping over the Sutrayana? Should we not pay first a lot of more attention and study on the Sutras rather than jumping directly in Nandro and Jokchen or whatever we want to? Thank you. Well, in terms of the second question first, since the, uh, you did understand me correctly, I uh, have seen from uh, uh, my experience that uh, many people get involved with uh, Tantra prematurely and uh, that it is uh, rather than helpful to them, it's not helpful at all. That uh, they tend to uh, not understand what they're doing it tends to become almost like a, a game, you know, they're playing uh, yogi, you know, and just uh, uh, get involved in all the uh, ritual aspects and don't actually apply anything to their life. So it's something which becomes totally separate from their life and therefore it doesn't really uh, make uh, a great uh, improvement on the you know, their personal life, you know, in terms of helping them to overcome anger or attachment or, you know, selfishness, uh, these sort of things. So uh, I definitely feel that uh, one needs to have the proper background, the proper uh, qualifications. Um, you see, the problem 
is that, uh, I mean, there, there are many problems, but uh, there are various issues which are involved here. First of all, uh, the practice of uh, Vajrayana and so on in traditional Tibet, or the practice of any Buddhism in, in traditional Tibet, was uh, mostly focused on the monastic community. And in the monastic community, people entered the monastery at, you know, seven, eight years old, and they had a whole education before they would get involved into, you know, anything more advanced. So they have that background. And the uh, lay population, for the most part, was illiterate. And the lay population would do mantras, recite uh, simple prayers, circumambulate, etc. But it was uh, rare that uh, the uh, lay people would become involved in practice. And this is something which was quite general in Buddhism, that uh, it was only started in Burma in the uh, early 20th century that they started teaching widespreadly to the lay po uh, population. That's one thing. So teaching now to uh, lay people, which is uh, by far the vast majority of the audience of Westerners, by far, is a very different situation. We haven't been exposed to this and thinking about this and working on this since we were eight years old. So all of a sudden, you know, we are uh, uh, brought into this. So that's premature. Secondly, and uh, perhaps this is not very uh, uh, nice to explain, but uh, the circumstances of being refugees has changed things very, very much for the situation of Tibetan Buddhism. The reality is that uh, uh, you don't have a society that is supportive of the monastic community, you know, in which there was never really a worry about feeding all the monks and uh, all of that, housing, these sort of things. It was there. Society functioned. Now, you bring into uh, an exile situation, and it's no joke to feed, you know, let's say 4,000 monks every day no joke at all. And where do you house them and so on? And so these lamas uh, and geishas and rinpoches, especially the rinpoches who travel around, have an unbelievable amount of pressure from the monasteries to bring back, you know, and help us to feed all the monks and house them. So that's there. If they come and they teach about very basic topics, then, you know, how many people are going to come to listen to something about, you know, refuge, let alone something about the hell realms? Nobody, you know, very few are going to come. You give an initiation, everybody comes, you know, because we think, oh, you know, special, exotic, etc. So that's one pressure that uh, the... Uh, um, especially the Rinpoches have ones with uh, responsibility for the monastery. Another factor that's uh, involved is that uh, Tibetan population are born with uh, rebirth as part of their cultural heritage, as I said, in a, a cultural package, you know? So it's sort of accepted that there is such a thing as rebirth and when uh, lamas give initiations and so on, there's going to be only a small percentage of people who take it who are actually going to practice. And the main idea is planting seeds for future lives. And so many lay Tibetans will come, no intention of doing the practice, maybe they'll do a mantra, but uh, no intention of going further and they're planting all the seeds for future lives. You know, next lifetime I'll understand. You hear this even among monks and nuns. Next lifetime I'll understand. Now just planting seeds. So, 
especially the older generation of uh, Tibetan lamas, think that, you know, oh, this, is, this is the way things are done. And that uh, people in the West, obviously, are also having the same mentality. They're coming to plant seeds for future lives. Wonderful, you know, great. Perfect you know, motivation, etc. Everything's going fine, except that Western people don't believe in future lives. They don't believe in planting seeds, and they want to do something. You know, well, receive Kala Chakra initiation. You know, no lay Tibetans would ever be so presumptuous as to think that they could practice Kala Chakra. It's the most complicated, you know, practice. And yet now, you know, there's this huge Kala Chakra network and everybody wants to do it. And not everybody, but I mean, you know, certain very dedicated uh, group of people want to do it. You know, it would be just normally restricted to a very few, very special monasteries that do it because it's so complicated. So we get into it in a, uh, a premature type of way. Also, another problem is that you know, great lamas come and they only stay for a short while. You know, you find this in, you know, places like in Russia and so on. They come, they give the initiation, they leave, no instructions, nothing. And then people go on such weird trips with uh, all of this. And they expect that, you know, after doing 100,000 this or 100,000 that, you know, all your troubles will be gone. So this is uh, a little bit of uh, what, uh, and it's, you know, advertised as, you know, this is the easy path and this is the quick path and just, you know, relax into the natural state of the mind and so on. And His Holiness calls that Buddhist propaganda that uh, this is, you know, really, you know, come on, folks, this is, this is difficult stuff. And yes, you can, you know, go very far very quickly, but you have to put in an unbelievable amount of, effort into that and you have to be really very well prepared you know how about having really good concentration let alone having discipline and uh, all these other things and oh yeah by the way there's the mundro you know so uh, that as well so it's not so easy not so easy my point being dependent arising that the circumstance that we are in now uh of uh uh, so many of us uh, getting involved with uh, Tantra prematurely has arisen for many, many causes and conditions. You know, so we can't say that, you know, oh, because of this and because of that, you know, and put all the blame on one thing or another. This is the situation that we're in. So that's why, you know, what I am trying to uh, explain or think about is that... Uh, uh, well, accept the situation. This is our situation. How can we make the best of it? And making the best of it, I think, uh, you know, that there are, given that we don't think of future lives, given that we are super busy, you know, it's not, you can't just take off for most people three years from your life and expect that, uh, you know, and do some long-term retreat and expect that you're going to be able to get, it's not going to make a profound change in you so that when you come back, you know, you're not going to be able to just fit back into your, you know, job and your family and all of that. That this is, this is serious stuff. So, what's the reality of what we can do? What can we expect realistically so that we're not going to be disappointed that we don't get it? And this is to, what should we say? I mean, we will, you know, I plan to explain this a bit, but, uh, you know, okay, you do, you know, you get in these practices, very helpful for discipline, very helpful for humility, you know, if we're going to do it in Tibetan, uh, and then build up, you know, the pieces more and more so that it becomes meaningful, that you fill in the structure of the sadhana. If in the sadhana it says, you know, I take refuge, you know, and uh, from that, you know, now I develop bodhicitta, now I develop the four immeasurables. Well, just saying that doesn't do terribly much to transform your mind, does it? But, uh, you know, you need to have worked on that so that when you recite this, you actually generate that state of mind. 
and you're able to generate it quickly. Now, that's not something that you can do you know, all of a sudden. That requires a lot of practice. But uh, if you have you know, a lot of familiarity, then you don't have to go through all the steps. You know, let's say for bodhicitta, well, everybody is equal, everybody's been my mother, they've been so kind, you know, grateful for mother's kindness, and it's, you know, the seven steps. You can just root up like that and generate the state of mind. As, uh, you know, Sirkin Rinpoche used to say, I think it was wonderful, he gave a course on uh, Lamrim, the graded stages of the path, which is a, uh, uh, one way of, of uh, you know, the, all the sutra teachings can be presented in several different styles of how you structure it. So there's the three scopes of uh, Lamrim, there's the four thoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma, there's the way it's organized in Jewel Ornament of Liberation, there's the parting from the four clingings that you have in Sakya, there are many, many different ways of and mixing and matching in the four you know, uh, dharmas of uh, uh, Gampopa uh, that you recited here. So, I mean, many, many ways. They're all mixed together. But anyway, so you presented, you know, the whole thing over a, a, a long weekend and then at the end said, you know, and now, you know, we will uh, do, you know, the, uh, and then he also explained the Chenrezig practice and he said, okay, now we'll do meditation uh, go through the entire Lam Rim and then generate, you know, the Chenrezig uh, practice and we'll do that for two minutes. <laughs> and then people said, what, you know, how can you go through all of this in, you know, two minutes? And I said, okay, three, uh, <laughs> like that. And then he explained that uh, when you are very well trained, that uh, from the time you put one foot in the stirrup of a saddle, till you put your foot over the horse, that you should be able to go through the entire lamrim, generate it just like that. This is what you're aiming for. So likewise, when you do the sadhana, you need to be able to generate at each point what you're actually saying. So you fill it in slowly. You know, if we have the whole the whole structure, then you can follow the advice that uh, Tsongkhapa gave in terms of uh, uh, how you do a visualization. He said that with a complex visualization, what uh, you, uh, you know, there are two ways of doing it. One is that, you know, you just focus on one little thing like, you know, the third eye, and then you gradually add, you know, detail after detail. He said that's one way. But the main way that is uh, most common and most helpful for the largest number of people is that you uh, try to visualize the entire mandala and the entire deity, the whole thing, very roughly. No details. Just a sense of the thing, what you're supposed to be visualizing. And then slowly within that larger structure, you fill in more and more details, and the more focused you are on, uh, concentrated, the more the details will come into focus. So, like that, if we're doing a sadhana practice, okay, you have the structure of the whole thing, and then, <laughs> based on, you know, our further sutra style of meditation, you can fill in in more detail each of the parts. I think that this is the only way that uh, we can do it now if we are already committed to doing a daily practice. Yeah, but this is a very, very important question, a very important issue that uh, we all find. And what I had planned to mention was also a, uh, uh, a point that uh, Sirkin Rinpoche gave. He was very down to earth. Uh, very, very down-to-earth and compassionate. And he said, if you find that uh, you have uh, received an initiation and taken a practice commitment prematurely and you're not able to keep it, that he said, in your mind, put it up on a high shelf. You know, with respect. 
that uh, I acknowledge that now I'm really not ready to do this, but I fully intend to come back to it when I'm ready. And if you do that, that's a very, very different taste, isn't it, than saying, you know, oh, I was such an idiot for doing this, and that was so stupid, and, you know, forget about it. This, I think, is very, very helpful advice if we find ourselves in that situation. Next. Uh, uh, I, I have done an andro. You have? Yes. Mm -hmm. T 10 years ago, I finished, I think. Um, I uh, do Guru Yoga and Vajragini, only the mantra. But I, and I do drugs, and, and I do not want to learn new sadhanas. I think it's so much to think about. Uh, it to, to takes so much energy and time mm -hmm. to learn. Mm -hmm. Yes, what would you say to that? There's the uh, <laughs> saying that uh, in uh, the, in <laughs> I forget which uh, Tibetan master long ago said that uh, the uh, uh, Indian masters practiced only one deity and accomplished all of them, realized all of them, and the Tibetans tried to practice all of them and realized none. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to really uh, uh, see what is our own capacity. And one is more than enough. Yeah. What uh, is uh, helpful, you know, and uh, as, uh, again, I always, you know, rely on the advice of uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which is that uh, when you're ready to put, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week into your intensive practice, you know, now it's it. You know, I'm going to do it. Then you have to choose just one. Mm -hmm. One deity, one practice that you're going to do. And this is what you focus on. Now, before that, each of the uh, deity practices has a, um, an emphasis, more detail, on one part of the practice than another part of the practice. So you get, you know... One aspect is more elaborate, more steps here in this practice, and one has more steps there in that practice. And so if you have the capacity, you can do more than one you know, of these uh, practices in order to get a little bit more detail, a little bit more familiarity with uh, you know, this type of practice or that type of uh, practice. You know, generating more, you know, aspects of uh, body, you know, working more on chakras or working, you know, more on uh, detail on how you develop, you know, get to the clear light mind. Or, I mean, there's all these different aspects. But that's only as a, as a basis. But when you're really serious, just one. And it's not a matter of uh, competition of uh, which Tantra is the best. I mean, you have this even in Mahayana Sutras. They all say, you know, this is the best, and, you know, this is the most wonderful one, and you recite this, and, uh, you know, all your problems go away. You purify 72,000 eons of, you know, uh, negative potential. You know, they all praise themselves. So that is, has to be understood within a certain context, but... Uh, all of that, all of the teachings are intended to bring you to enlightenment, and they all will equally bring you to enlightenment. So you don't have to worry about that. By the way, just as an aside, <laughs> let me mention <laughs> something about these uh, Mahayana Sutras. That uh, I don't know how much you're familiar with reading these Mahayana Sutras, but uh, they're filled with praising themselves and uh, saying that if you read this. Uh, well, not read this, recite it, because, you know, remember, there are hardly any written copies. 
and it was all done orally. So you had to memorize the thing in order to be able to uh, recite it. So that's a tremendous effort to uh, do that. These sutras are long. So if you think about it, and this is my own thought, but uh, thinking about it is that uh, if you need to, uh, you know, if we have built up negative potential from beginningless time, that's an awful lot of negative potential, you know. Countless eons we have built up negative potential. And it says in Sutra that you have to, you know, spend three countless eons, you know, three zillion eons of uh, positive force to, you know, overcome all of that. So if you say, well, but if I recite this, I can purify 72,000 eons of it then actually that's just a drop in the bucket. But nevertheless, it gives you some hope that you're going a little bit further. And I think that this is the intention that uh, is there. You know, just as the intention in these Mahayana Sutras of, uh, you know, and the Buddha taught and there were, and then he gives these numbers, you know, 720,000 uh, gods were there and 42,500, you know, uh, Gandhara, Gandharvas were there. And it gives us huge audience. And you go, oh my God, you know, what is all of this? But uh, again, Mahayana. Mahayana, vast vehicle. So you want to open up your mind to the vastness of countless beings. And so if you try to picture Buddha on Vulture's Peak, for example, and if you've ever been to Vulture's Peak, it's a fantastic scene because there's this mountain and there's this ledge that sticks over and from the ledge there's this enormous valley. And so then you, you know, if you sit there, which you can do, and then imagine this whole thing filled with beings then you start to get a sense of Mahayana. You know, when we talk about all sentient beings, well, come on, that's a very large number. So these large numbers that they describe in the sutras actually are very helpful. You know, and one shouldn't get worried and upset of, you know, where, how did they come up with these numbers? That's not the point. You know, why is it 36 million and not 37 million? Uh, I don't think that's the point. The point is to give some encouragement and get your mind open to thinking, you know, in a Mahayana sense of vastness. So that's just an aside, but uh, I find that a very helpful point. Otherwise, it's very easy to uh, break your bodhisattva vows by putting down the Mahayana Sutras and being a bit ashamed of them. You know, there's really weird stuff that's going on in them. But to see that uh, uh, Buddha always uses skillful methods to help us to expand the mind, especially in the sense of Mahayana, to take it seriously all sentient beings and beginningless time and how much effort it takes to overcome that be the inertia of beginningless ignorance. Okay, next question. Um, I wonder if you can say something about uh, the triana. About what? Uh, sorry, the uh, sorry, um, before the three, the three kayas. Uh, I was saying wrong. Can you say something about the three kayas? Because, uh, especially about the Samboga kaya, mm -hmm. because I think uh, many of us, including myself, has a little bit problem to understand what this kind of indicates. Because you said, for example, that in the Mahayana Sutras there's countless uh, beings, Gandharvas. These mm -hmm. are definitely not human beings, they're kind of spiritual beings in different planes. Has this anything to do with the Samboga kaya level? of reality? Uh, no, not really. Not really. Sambhogakaya, there's a sutra explanation, uh, sutra presentation, and a tantra presentation, particularly in Anutra Yoga Tantra, highest tantra. And uh, there, 
we find in uh, Sutra that, uh, let's see if I can actually list them, of the five certainties, factors that are certain about Sambhogakaya, that uh, they uh, are teaching to an Arya Bodhisattva audience. So these are Bodhisattvas who have had non-conceptual cognition of voidness, emptiness. So there's not your usual Gandharvas and deities and so on that populate, you know, that are the audience of the Mahayana Sutras. And they teach in uh, Buddha fields, so these pure lands. And they have, uh, they're always teaching Mahayana. And they uh, have uh, all the uh, uh, major and minor physical signs of a Buddha. And they uh, um, go on forever. You know, no cessation of that. So there's five certainties of, uh, of this. So that's Sambhogakaya. So in Sutra, what this indicates is that uh, Buddha will manifest, you know, that uh, if you speak in terms of uh, Mahamudra, for example, you know, so there's the void nature of the mind, the omniscient nature of the mind. So this is Dharmakaya aspect. And that uh, this uh, communicates out. You know, so communicating out is, uh, is represented by Sambhogakaya. And then appearance aspect, you know, it appears. So the appearance of Sambhogakaya, the emanation of the Sambhogakaya is the Nirmanakaya. So Nirmanakaya is to teach ordinary beings. Sambhogakaya is to teach Arya Bodhisattvas. So you have these two different uh, levels. And in uh, Tantra, I mean, this is why you have two different levels to, uh, you know, for two specific types of uh, audiences. And then in uh, Tantra, uh, Sambhogakaya is identified with the enlightening speech of the Buddha. So again, a way of communicating, you know, going out. And then Nirmanakaya's physical appearance. And then Kalachakra says, well, it's both. So that's a little bit about Sambhogakaya. Sambhogakaya. <laughs> now I have to bring in <laughs> my languages. <laughs> Sorry. Samboga. Sambhogakaya is uh, uh, translated usually by, as uh, enjoyment body. But that's not really the meaning. I mean, that's one meaning of the Sanskrit word. If you look in the dictionary, it's to enjoy. It also means to eat, you know, for that matter, <laughs> you know, among its uh, various meanings. But... Uh, uh, Tibetans translate it with uh, the word that means to, to make use of. And that usually is the way that uh, it is uh, um, described. It is the body of a Buddha that can make full use of the Mahayana teachings by teaching it in pure lands to Arya Bodhisattvas. So that's the meaning of Samboga, of Sambhogakaya. It's not, you know, that enjoyment that you know here's a body for your entertainment it's not the entertainment body <laughs> yeah um could you say something about the um, speed in sadhana's uh, mantras uh, the what about um, uh, about using speed, I mean... Split? Uh, speed. You don't know how fast, speed. How fast to go in the meditation oh. as, as a means to both generate the right state of mind or to counter distractions and so on. Um, is this a personal issue or is, is, is it possible to say something generalized about this? Sir Karibache put it very nicely. He said that when the Lord of Death comes, doesn't wait for you to, you know, sit up straight and to, you know, <laughs> set your motivation and uh, generate everything slowly. When the Lord of Death comes, you have to be able to generate it in an instant. You know, get your act together instantly. And so this is the, um, 
aim is to be able to, you know, in one moment generate the whole thing. Now the question is, how do you get there? <laughs> how do you train yourself to get there? And then, you know, in the beginning you need to go slowly. And if you have the leisure and the time to be able to do your practices slowly, wonderful. You know, if you look in the monasteries, some monasteries will chant unbelievably slowly. You know, in uh, the monastery of, you know, Sirka Rinpoche, the one that I, you know, have spent time in and I, I'm familiar with, the Gukhya Samaja Tantra, they, you know, at certain times of year, the root tantra, the monastery will get together and recite it, chant it. Well, I mean, they could spend one minute on one syllable, you know, with this, you know, this whole way in which uh, they chant. And it could take them the whole day to get through just one chapter of uh, the thing. So that's one style. If you want to go to uh, an extreme, and uh, the other one, you know, when, uh, uh, for instance, uh, His Holiness's monastery, Namgyal Tatsang, they do everything at super speed. So, for instance, when His Holiness does the uh, Kala Chakra initiation, they have to do the self-initiation, which is about four times longer than the uh, initiation ceremony itself, in the morning before and they do that at top speed and it still takes five hours to do it and if they didn't do it at top speed you know and i've sat with them you know while you know doing that and it's hard to you know for your eyes to even follow that uh quickly then and especially you know when his holiness does uh you know for any initiation that he does you know, the big stage and so on, he comes and he does the self-initiation before. And you can't believe how quickly His Holiness uh, is able to, you know, recite all of this and do all of this. So that's the other extreme. So I think uh, the most important criterion is that uh, do it at a speed at which it still has meaning. And that's, that's not easy. That's not easy. It's uh, described very well in cognition theory in Buddhism. You have a, uh, um, a category that we use, you know, an audio category. So the words, so you get the words going, but you have to fill in a meaning category with the words. And it's very easy to just have the words and no meaning. These are two quite separate things. And you can have the words and your mind, uh, which is on automatic pilot, and your mind could be thinking about all sorts of other things. And it's very interesting that that's described in cognition theory that these are two separate, you know, uh, factors that are involved. So even if you've trained yourself to recite or to do it in your mind i mean this is again you know an issue are you going to say it out loud you're going to say it under your breath so that your mouth at least mouths the words without because it takes much longer to actually say it out loud or are you just going to do it in your mind and doing it in your mind although much faster there's more danger that there's no meaning with it but there are these styles, because there are these styles in terms of how you recite mantras, and it's clear that there's mental recitation, there's verbal recitation, so there are these styles. So you have to judge for yourself, but the main thing is meaning, not just the words. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, Lama Changchub uh, often uh, or in, encourages us to do our best approximation of being a noble Sangha. Of being what? 
uh, in, you know, like a, a noble sangha, e even though maybe we are not, maybe Arya Bodhisattvas, but uh, to do create our, the, our best approximation. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, since you are both a, a, a scholar and a practitioner, mm -hmm. I would love to hear if you could share some, uh, both some Buddhist teaching on what are some of the common features of a healthy, mundane uh, Sangha, and some of your personal observation while traveling and seeing, w is there some features to aspire for, or n you have no noticed that very healthy Sangha often display? Uh, yeah, is my question. Okay, uh, that's a very good question. One of the tantric vows is never to get angry at your Vajra brothers and sisters. So Vajra brother and sister is defined as anybody who has received uh, an initiation from the same Lama that you've received an initiation from. It doesn't have to be the same initiation or at the same time. Because as part of the initiation, you imagine becoming a child of the, you know, you're born through the, the tantric master. Well, that's pretty difficult, you know, as a start, you know, within our uh, community to uh, be patient with each other, not get angry with each other. In most communities, there's uh, usually some person that is very annoying and challenging. Inevitably, there's somebody like that in each community. And uh, one needs to be patient, not get angry. There are many guidelines from uh, the uh, various vows, actually. The monastic vows, the bodhisattva vows, the tantric vows, in terms of... Uh, helping to build a community. In fact, uh, many of, you know, most of the vows in for monastic vows were intended to help create that uh, community. What I find unfortunate is, or sad, I should say, is that in some Buddhist uh, communities, the people come and they just, you know, do their practice and everybody is quiet and so on. and. They don't interact with each other, and everybody leaves. And if somebody gets sick or something like that, nobody goes to help or anything. I think we can learn very much from our Christian communities that if you're going to be a community, as in the monasteries, that if somebody is sick, you take care of them. If somebody is in need, you help them. So people stay in uh, communication. This is, uh, I think, uh, uh, essential if one is going to be a community. One is, you know, if one wants to benefit from the advantages of being a community, it should be a community that cares about each other and that knows about each other. You know, so you get to know each other. This type of thing, this requires communication. So there are certain circumstances where being silent and not talking has its benefits. There are other, you know, but if that leads to nobody knowing each other and everybody being in their own individual world, then one needs to see, you know, the appropriate method at the appropriate time and the appropriate situation. You know, in other situations, the community has to know about each other, learn about each other, be friendly with each other and welcoming and open for newcomers. Make newcomers feel welcome. That's very, very important. You know, don't give up, you know, it says, don't give up love, one of the Bodhisattva vows, you know, never give up, Tantra vows as well, don't give up love, you know, for, for anyone. That's the wish for them to be happy. To have the causes for, be, for being happy. So what does that mean? Welcoming them, not excluding them, not feeling, you know, don't bother me, type of thing. And uh, what is uh, also very 
uh, sad in some communities is that uh, children aren't welcome. And this excludes families. And so you often have either older people who don't have uh, young children, or you have single people. There was uh, one group that I went to once, and uh, somebody brought their uh, two-year-old to the teaching, and the two-year-old ran around wild during the teaching and so on. And you know, I was just a guest there, and uh, somebody else was the teacher. And he pointed out, you know, this little boy is our teacher of patience, you know, and this is our lesson for today is to, you know, not be upset at this little boy who's running around. I mean, after all, you know, at some point we're going to be another, <laughs> you know, if you think in terms of rebirth, we're going to be a little kid again. So welcoming. And, uh, you know, if you have child care, so you have child care, you know, make it available. These sort of things are, uh, you know, very, very important. And if there's somebody who is sick, go visit them. Somebody in the hospital, go visit them. Help out. Give each other support. I think it's also very helpful to, you know, there are certain aspects of the practice that one wants to just keep private between, you know, yourself and the teacher. Fine, you know, that uh, one keeps uh, uh, private in that sense. But there are other things that, uh, for instance, in my group in uh, Berlin, first of all, most of us go out to a restaurant after the teaching together. And it's a small group. I always, I purposely keep it small. I have it just in my apartment. You know, five to 12 people, the most, don't advertise, because people can listen to it on podcast, et cetera, so that's fine. You know, I'm not there for the money or anything like that. And so the uh, group, everybody knows each other. And we have sessions in which we talk about, you know, well, how have you applied the teachings to your life? I mean, this is what it's all about, is applying it to your life. It's not just a, a hobby that you do on the side as, you know, uh, rather than going to the movies, I'll sit here and do a sadhana. You know, it's not something like that. But uh, how do you apply it in your life? How did it help you? Did it help you? And if you're facing a certain problem, then bring it to the group. I mean, it's not quite, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or something like that, but bring it to the group and let's figure out you know, what would be a Dharma way of uh, dealing with this? You know, how can we help each other? But this way, you make a, you know, a real Buddhist community. This, I think, is very helpful. Now, of course, if you have a very large number of people, that's not so easy. But you can break into smaller groups. And these, I think, are helpful uh, guidelines from my own experience. Otherwise, I mean, in our lives, especially in the modern world, we're so isolated. And social media doesn't quite help either. You know, it gives the appearance of being connected, but, you know, here you are sitting in your room looking at something on a screen. You know, at all these other people having such a good time. And I'm sitting here watching you have a good time. So that, you know, makes us feel even more isolated. So, you know, Coming together, I think, is face-to-face. Uh, uh, you, know, -face. you know, put your digital devices to the side. You know, don't even have them with you. And apply the uh, teachings. When I teach uh, meditations, like, you know, I developed this thing called uh, Developing Balanced Sensitivity which uh, is a way of uh, uh, overcoming being, you know, oversensitive, being insensitive to, you know, the effect of your behavior on yourself, the effect of your behavior on others, your own situation, the situation of others, etc. You know, it's all training based on the Dharma. But uh, in that, and then I've uh, extended this to 
you know, the, the more standard uh, meditations that uh, we do in a group, is to rather than sit and imagine feeling love to a visualized, you know, audience of beings, you know, which is, you know, it's, what should we say? It doesn't challenge you in the same way as dealing with actual people. You know, they're not going to look you back in the eye type of uh, thing. So although that has its benefit, you know, especially when we're alone, that uh, we meditate in a circle and look at each other. And if you're going to uh, uh, meditate, for instance, everybody has been my mother in a previous life and has been kind to me. Well, then you look at each person. You've been a mother to me. You've been a mother to me. You've been a mother to me. You know, actually generate that feeling with another human being. You know, may you be happy. And may you be happy. And may you be happy. And feel it, direct it toward each person in the group. Then it becomes much more powerful. It starts to have an emotional component, which is very difficult to generate with a visualization. It becomes real. And then it becomes easier to practice this when you're sitting on a bus, when you're sitting on the subway, when you're stuck in traffic. You know, to look at all the people who are also stuck in the traffic and realize that nobody wants to be stuck in this traffic. I'm not the only one that wants to get home quickly or get to where I want to be. And then rather than cursing the person in the car next to you, generate a feeling of love toward the person in the car next to you. That's the application. Otherwise, you know, we're miserable in the traffic jam. Use it as a perfect opportunity to, you know, practice. So this helps to build a community when we actually practice with each other in that way, not just everybody sitting isolated visualizing, but actually try to put these practice, these uh, positive states of mind into uh, actuality with each other and help each other to understand, you know, if somebody is having a difficulty to implement something. And it's very, very helpful. You know, people come in, you know, and at work, you know, this person was so difficult and blah, blah, blah. You know, okay, how to deal with this? It's very, very helpful for the community and very helpful for each person. I mean, we're already at the end of our hour, but uh, you're very keen to ask the question, so last question. Also, we can have more time for questions. You know, I don't have to lecture all the time. If you have more questions and things you like to discuss and you find that helpful, you know, I'm quite happy to do that. Well, thank you. Oh, I think it was very inspiring what you just uh, talked about now about the community and the group, not too big. And then I wonder, such a group, which sounds very uh, down to earth or down to real life, how long uh, do a group like that stay together? I mean, if, we, if I go to a course in our community, it, it's maybe for the spring or for the autumn. But like what you, at least what I heard you talked about, it would be very nice to keep on for some time so you get to know each other and follow up. Can you comment on that, please? Right. There's a, uh, a difference between having a weekend seminar and people come from all over and having a regular weekly class. I'm talking about my weekly class. And for the weekly class, there are people who have been coming for years. And uh, there are, you know, from time to time, new people join. And they're made to feel welcome. Not everybody comes every week, definitely not. This is uh, you know, a big difference from uh, a traditional situation in a monastery, for instance. I mean, you come to every, every session, there's no excuse. There's the reality is that we're very busy and can't always come. So it's flexible like uh, that, but to uh, 
when I teach this uh, sensitivity training, for instance, just an introductory weekend, still you can do it in a circle. And if there are lots of people, you do it in two or three circles. It doesn't matter. But uh, for long term, you know, and then you don't actually get to know, you know, all the people in the circle personally. But that's okay. You don't get to know all the people on the bus or in the traffic jam personally. Still, you can generate this feeling of, may you be happy. And I'm not going to judge you. Very important aspect, you know, no judgments. I just want to help. That's an amazing gift that you can give. That's the gift of equanimity. You know, there's generosity. There are many forms of generosity, but one form of generosity is the generosity of equanimity. What does that mean? I'm not going to cling to you. You know, I'm not going to reject you. And I'm not going to ignore you. you know, the three poisons, if you want to put it in interactional uh, terminology. Not cling, not reject, and not ignore. It's a wonderful gift that you can give to somebody. So you can do it with strangers. But if you want to develop, you know, personal friendship and so on in the community that takes care of each other, then obviously it needs to be people that come regularly. So, okay. Thank you. Okay, so let's end our session and then we'll continue after the break.